0: And I think it was also a really clever choice to make both of the parents in the story writers. So when you get his side of the story, it's a good story. And when you get her side of the story and you listen to her testify, she's got a great story. And then they finally have their son on the stand and he's the son of two writers. So his story is compelling. It really is, I don't know, sort of a circular thing in terms of story. That's actually, I think it's really definitely going to be nominated for its screenplay. Hello and welcome to At The Movies with Mike and Marie, a show where two film professors talk about movies. I'm Marie Westhaver
1: and I'm Mike Giuliano
0: and today we're going to talk about Killers of the Flower Moon and Anatomy of a Fall. And we'll start with the Scorsese film Killers. Mike, where do you want to start with this discussion?
1: I want to start as a fan. Uh, Martin Scorsese is one of my favorite directors, and Marie and I both use his films in our courses, and so we're indoctrinating our students as well. And, you know, we could spend hours just talking about that career, but in terms of this particular film, I've actually met Scorsese a couple times over the years, and, and just one of my cultural heroes in so many ways. He's had one of the great careers in American film history. So, you know, I start off sharing that sense of anticipation for any new Scorsese film. In terms of this particular one, towards of the our Moon. It's based on a nonfiction book by David Grand. And I actually met David Grand last summer and had a chance to ask him about the film adaptation. And he said one of the best things about it was when you think about the story, and to briefly summarize the story for our audience, it mostly takes place in the 1920s on an Indian reservation, in and around an Indian reservation in Oklahoma, And the gist of it is this is the point where oil is being discovered in in that part of the state. And when it's on Indian land, this is where it becomes a fascinating legal and eventually criminal issue, namely that if you're part of the Indian tribe and, and that's discovered on your land, you have those mineral rights. And then in terms of how those are sold, how they're handled and so on, what were called head rights. And what was happening in the 20s was there was this spate of mysterious deaths. Some of them were obvious homicides, some were just puzzling illnesses, on and on that way. Local law enforcement was, to put it politely, rather lax in in trying to seek out justice. And then, you know, eventually the feds were were called in. And so the the book is meticulous in its research. It's really a, a very impressive book. And so when I was talking to David Grant about it a a little bit, he said for him the treat was he was on location for part of it. And I want to share that with the audience because so much of the success of this film, certainly visually, is that it was shot on location in in, in the way where you really feel like you're in that time and place. I mean, you really are immersed in that. It's totally convincing. And that was, you know, I I thought one of the real um, pluses in the film itself. I've got to point out quickly, much as I admire this film, I'll make a, a few reservations speaking reservations. These are critical <laughs> reservations here. Namely that, you know, I, I don't have a qualm actually with the running time of the film. And and people have talked a lot about this. We could talk for hours about it. It's a daunting three hours and 26 minutes. And my feeling is it's a very fast three hours and 26 minutes. I really thought it was worth the time. And I've got to say by way of a soapbox speech that nowadays when we have superhero movies that push three hours, almost nobody mentions that as a complaint. But somehow in a serious film like this one comes along, suddenly it becomes an issue. So just stay in your seat... A little bit longer and you don't have to sit through all the end credits even there aren't any Easter eggs there so you know you get out in pretty good time but, but you know allow for that that it is a, a lengthy film but I have two reservations. One is that the film takes a while to build real momentum. you got to be patient with it for a while. But once it does, it's actually, I think, really overwhelming. I think that there's some incredibly powerful scenes, but you have to, like, mark time a bit. So, yeah, perhaps it could be a bit tighter. And, and a, 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 by way of a career-long criticism, or at least late-career criticism, I think Scorsese's films since Wolf of Wall Street have been on the long side and and often needlessly so. I think a lot of his films, and even Thomas Goomaker, admitted with Wolf of Wall Street that they were up against a Christmas release deadline and the film got away from them. She said it herself she would have liked to see it tighter. I think a lot of his films in the last decade or so could be tighter. And yet, where would I cut? That's that's always the quandary. They're such strong films, but they do tend to go on. So that is one reservation. It probably does take longer than it needs to. The other reservation actually is, is the more serious of the two. The real strength of David Graham's book is in the second half of the book, I think, where he shows that the FBI's response to this is lackluster, to put it politely. And and he goes into great detail. And this is at the point where the FBI is just becoming the FBI. It's hard to believe now, but there actually was a time when J. Edgar Hoover was a young man. And this is very early in his life, in his career. And the Bureau is not exactly eager to find justice for these Native Americans. And, And so that's really, really compelling in the book. What Scorsese does in the film is not just downplay that, but he presents the FBI as almost heroic figures who've come in to help and in that respect, it's a more conventional film than, than, than it should be. The film is really full of ambiguity and complexity and all the things I like in a movie, but not when it comes to the depiction of the FBI particularly. And then what happens is, uh, because amidst all this violence and all this criminal activity, one of the root causes is that as Indians come into this wealth, and this is all true, you know, they suddenly were like, Per capita, like the wealthiest Americans. And, and there are scenes that are meant to be funny early on of them driving like top of the line cars in the 20s and like living it up like wild, you know, is having a great old time. But the fact that, you know, many of the white residents of the area were, of course, resentful. And then one of the really devious schemes was that particularly among young white men, they were making a point of marrying Indian women one way or another to sort of get in on it. So they'd be the heirs to all this, uh, you know, mineral wealth, oil money, basically. And, and so, you know, all that is like fascinating subject matter. So, but what happens is the the FBI comes in basically kind of riding to the rescue. And the focus in the film, which is not the focus in the book, is that there's a Leonardo DiCaprio character who's one of the, the, the white men who's going to sort of marry into the Indian culture. He becomes so much the center of attention and, and in a sympathetic way. And on the one hand, I find that fascinating because it's easy to very quickly say he's a villain. And yet this is a film that denies easy answers. Well, he's kind of villainous, but maybe he actually does have some good and then maybe he actually really does love his wife and you kind of go back and forth on it. That is interesting, but it really starts to take the focus away from where it really should be. And again, makes it a more conventional film. That's why I've been tracking the critical response, not from professional film critics so much as from people within Native American culture. And they've been on the one hand flattered that here's a film that finally exposes this episode in history and and, and treats it seriously, but on the other hand, it's it's very much, you know, not just that Scorsese is a white man directing the film, but the film itself, in terms of the narrative, really sort of favors the FBI and, and a couple of principal white characters there. And believe me, there are enough hours devoted to Native American culture, but it, it tips the balance, I think, in terms of the narrative force of the film. And that's why some of the Indian criticism has been, well, we would love to see the story told from a, an Indian point of view. So those are just a few opening observations. Let me just turn it back over. To you because i'll go on for three hours and 26 minutes if i'm not <laughs> careful so i turn it back to you
0: well i agree with everything you said about how the focus of the story seems to sort of get lost in the second half i disagree with you about that running time it did not feel like three and a half hours i will say that but that is deadly in a theater I mean, I was in there opening weekend with all the hardcore Scorsese people who just could not wait to see really anything the man puts out. Let's let's have a look at it. And I have to tell you, the number one criticism as people were filing out was that they didn't find it violent enough, that they were sort of expecting The Departed set on an Indian reservation. And I was surprised by that reaction. Not completely surprised. I mean, I think people go to Scorsese movies hoping for gritty reality. But given that this is a story that not a lot of people know, and maybe you want to get the story out there, I think to make it that long, you alienate people before they're even going to sit down and watch it. It would have been better as a mini series or something you released on Netflix where people can get up and take breaks. I know that breaks the narrative of the story, but that's it's just too long.
1: Well, audiences are bloodthirsty. And, and, and so I think in many ways, they have expectations. And Scorsese, of course, <laughs> has to be culpable to some extent. But this film is actually, and this is one reason why it may, if not alienate audiences, at least puzzle them a bit. It's, it's a much more reflective story than one might expect. And, and let me talk about that on a technical level. And, and this is what I call it. This is definitely, Scorsese's 80 years old. And this is a late career film, however you put it, even though 80 now is like what used to be 70 or 60, 60 or something. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. He's But anyway, whether he's 60 or 80, the fact that, a late career film, very few mainstream directors keep working vigorously. Exceptions are people like Clint Eastwood into his 90s still directing, but that's unusual even today. But let's not get like sidetracked there so much as the fact that as a late career film, I'm not the first one to point this out. When you think about Scorsese's earlier films in particular, yes, the violence, also at, on a technical level, the, the kinetic qualities, a lot of fast camera work, moving camera work, quick edits, a slam bang kind of approach to, to cinema making. And I admire all that. The late films like this one this is a film that you could call his first western because so many hollywood westerns whether they're a period or you know period at this point would include the 1920s i suppose whether it's a 19th century setting or or somewhat more recent oftentimes involve land use in the west think about some of the greatest films like shane and so on you know when you have you know ranchers against farmers and so on and here it's an issue of who owns the land who controls it all that those are land rights issues and so thematically it's very much a Western, not just the fact that it's Oklahoma, but that particular thematic thread in the story. And as he shoots the story, he actually has camera work here that's closer to one of his heroes, everyone's hero, uh, John Ford. How Mm -hmm. could you not think of that? There are a lot of places in this film where the camera essentially just holds on a scene, holds on a shot. And when you have that Western panorama, why not? I was always John Ford's, you know, John Ford said, if you're in Monument Valley, it's so spectacular. Why move the camera? Set it up in the right place and have your mise-en-scene, have the actors in and out of the frame, just hold on the shot. Scorsese does that quite extensively here. And to your point, Marie, it does add to the running time for sure, because it's like another 30 seconds here, another 30 seconds there. That adds up to a few hours <laughs> after a while. There's definitely that. But I think on a more serious level there, the fact that this is a more contemplative film. So when you think about his recent films, like the film Silence, which pretty much was met with silence, came and went almost immediately. But those are films that are more reflective and and really bring out ethical concerns that may not involve as much overt bloodshed. Where the audience had a reason to be bloodthirsty beyond his track record is that the story itself is full of dozens, even hundreds of murders. And, And I think what he does is emphasize more the toll that it takes on the living. There are remarkable close up shots here of of the women in particular, The, the one woman, her mother, her sisters and so on, where he just holds on the faces. Not that he hasn't done that earlier in his career, but here he's got a, a more contemplative, a calmer. And, and this is a, a case where once you lock in. A few weeks ago, I went to hear Fran Lebowitz speak in, in Baltimore, and she had, she knows Scorsese as a friend, and, and she'd seen the film already. And she said, "You know what?" She said, "Don't complain that it's too long." She said, she she mentioned any number of like really drecky movies, with long running time. She said, "This is one it's worth it." She said, and 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 it just it just it doesn't matter that it's a few hours. It goes by, and for me, it did. Once I locked into it, yes, early on, as I said earlier. There's some stretches where I think it could be tightened up and it takes its time to get really rolling. But once it kicks in, it, it it's incremental for me. It gets to the point where it's, when I use the word overwhelming, I really meant there were scenes late in the film, particularly with the character played by Lily Gladstone, who's one of the Indian wives. It's a remarkable performance. Uh, she'll definitely get an Academy Award nomination for Best Actress. I think she should win it. I mean, it's, it's a great performance. It's so understated. It, it's it's so quiet that in, in some ways you need the time. You we need that kind of space cinematically here. And uh, yeah, one of the criticisms of the film that I don't think is justified is just as the Indians have had some criticism, and there's it, it merit there in terms of this being from the white perspective and white male and all that. There's also been criticism from female film critics or just commentary to the effect that, well, you know, why doesn't her character, the Lily Gladstone character, have more of a voice, more agency? Because oftentimes it's just her her, her silent face. And meantime, you know, in her immediate family, people are being killed or at least dying under mysterious circumstances. And here she is married to a white man. Why does she stay with them? How does she really feel about him? They want her to have more agency, to use a, a trendy word there. But that where I push back on that is, again, with historical fact when David Graham was researching his book, he did an incredible amount of archival research and you know, newspapers, history books, you name it. The frustration for him was that there's very little on the record of her voice, of her reaction. She's like the silent center of a story like this. And so the film is very true actually to that, that we, we can look at her face and wonder what must she be thinking. And for me, as a as a film goer, that pulled me into it. Every time it went to a close up of her, I was mesmerized. Like, how is this affecting her? She's not going to make a conventional Hollywood speech. Well, I, as a woman, you know, the she's not going to do that. She's she's not living in Howard County in 2023. I mean, with, with where she's living and how she's living, she holds it in. She keeps it in, and only a few points does she really express herself openly. There, that is very true to what we know from the historical record. So it's inherently frustrating that way. But uh, again, at the risk of going on as long as the film i I don't think it's really too long but i just i understand i respect your criticism there because other people have voiced it as well
0: yeah i just think it's not going to find a big enough audience because of its length until it goes to streaming and then people can well you know know what sandwich
1: do you know what bolsters your opinion? The opening weekend for it was okay at the box office, but not great. And for a big budget film like this, you need a big opening. And it had a lot of positive reviews, a lot of media buzz. So when you went to see it, that was the core Scorsese audience that wants to see anything that he made, anything. right? Anything. And I've mentioned it to some of my students who had not seen it and had barely heard of it. In the meantime, it had been out for a few weeks. And I thought, well, this is not a good sign when it's not registering on the radar, particularly for younger moviegoers. Uh, now that's not entirely the case. Some of my younger students were aware of it, but for the most part, hadn't really uh, seen it or or even known much uh, about it. Meantime, they'd all gone to see, you know, Five Nights at Freddy's and, you know, things like that. (laughs) But somehow, somehow Scorsese didn't make the cut.
0: Well, I think it's going to have another life on streaming before the Oscars. And I think it will get a lot of people who will be able to take the time to actually watch it. I agree with you. Lily Gladstone is the star of the film. She is the silent center. That's a really great way of putting it. I did want to ask you just one thing about the change in how Hollywood treats its leading men because DiCaprio and Robert De Niro both play really negative characters. And I couldn't help but think about Cary Grant back in the day where they wouldn't let him be a villain, Hitchcock's suspicion, because the audience didn't want to see Cary Grant be a bad guy. But we've really changed things now where this is the kind of role you have to do to be eligible for an Oscar. I and mean, that's how you get an Oscar worthy performance. What do you think about that change and the way we let leading men play roles?
1: Well, there's an evolution there, which I'm so glad you asked that because in our film history classes, as we talk about a genre like film noir, let's say from the 1940s, and we talk about that notion of the anti hero. As you see that developing in Hollywood films from the 40s onward, it's one reason why by the late 60s, you had that kind of macho aesthetic in Hollywood of more male stars than female stars at that point, right? and how often the male stars are playing guys who are, you know, on the bad side, and yet maybe lovably bad. I don't know how you want to put this, but like endearingly bad. Scoundrel. (laughs) Yeah, a scoundrel, but an an endearing scoundrel, a guy we smile at and like, and, you know, shooting up the town kind of thing. And and I'm being facile with it, but I think some of the films are facile that way as as well. And I think what's happened is, ironically, but not surprisingly, the anti-hero at some point becomes like the hero, right? And so it no longer has the onus that it might have had back in the, the classic studio era that you're referring to. So that has really definitely shifted. I think one of the problems here, and I mean, I really admire, obviously, Robert De Niro as an actor and Leonardo DiCaprio, and they both work with Scorsese extensively. And, you know, again, a John Ford connection, what would John Ford be without John Wayne, right? So mm-hmm. this is his go-to team. But I think the problem here is at least twofold. One, one, as I mentioned before, because they are the stars, and they're so reliable, and they work with Scorsese on this really kind of primal level, that's one reason why the story tilts towards those characters. The, a related concern, if not quite a problem is simply that although they're playing bad men certainly the de niro character who's like a major landowner and businessman and like he's in the elite in this town and so he's he's really powerful and he's really evil and so from the moment you see him you know he's, he's up to no good right and then he'll do he's full scheme in all kinds of ways the dicaprio character is a little more slippery the easy response is he's a bad guy he's a villain and, and he does hor- some horrible stuff but you know he's rather sympathetic as, as villains go and it's leo after all too right so how can you not like him but i think that's again, related to what I mentioned earlier, that that likability, it tips the balance in in the narrative and in storytelling. And that does become a problem, ultimately, I think, because we spend so much time with him, which I don't mind by way of a a performer I like. And, you know, and he does a good job with it. But it, it really takes the story away from where I think the focus should be.
0: Well, we should probably pivot and talk about Anatomy of a Fall, which is getting a lot of buzz now because it's, I think, the most intriguing movie that's out there right now. But again, it has a deadly running time. And I think it has a few problems in its story. But I do want to mention, uh, I did appreciate the way this movie kind of starts off with an instrumental version of 50 Cent's PIMP song featuring Snoop Dogg. And then the first character to appear is a dog named Snoop. And then they end with the dog, too. I love bookends like that. This one, the Palm Door at Cannes Film Festival. It's intriguing. It's interesting. Actually, the first thing I wanted to ask you, Mike, is when you saw the poster for it, did you say to yourself, wow, that looks like the one from Fargo?
1: well actually i just ironically just looked at the poster the other day walking by it and and, yeah there's some similarities there when you mentioned the cinematic book ending there your complaint is there's too much shelf space between the bookends yes Um, yes and and um and i i don't actually agree in in that case and so often as you and i have these discussions we're watching and not just superhero movies we're always complaining the film is too long yeah yeah for some reason with both of today's films i didn't feel they were too long this is a film which won the top prize as marie says at the Cannes film festival so it's had a lot of buzz for that reason alone secondly it's had really strong reviews thirdly it merits that as you watch it this film has a running time of 2 hours and 31 minutes and i was really mesmerized all the way through and i'll tell you why this is a who done it And it truly is a whodunit in the sense that we can't say much at all about the storyline as it unrolls because the spoilers would start to pop out here and there. But we can give the basic premise, the setup. It's a house in the French Alps. A married couple share it with their young son. They're both writers. Now, he is a rather frustrated writer. He hasn't quite had a career that launched. And, you know, he's grumbling about this and that. And it's tension in marriage. She, meantime, is a successful writer, very much so, TV talk show kind of level. But they're under some financial pressure. And in fact, one of the fascinating, and it's a very subtle film in in so many ways, even though she's this big, successful writer, she's still doing translations on the side to make some extra money. Because when they moved to this house in the French Alps, it's his hometown. She didn't want to, they were living in London. She didn't want to make the move her first language is German. It's not French. It's not English. The film's mostly in English because that's the language that the husband and wife have in common. They're both fluent in English. And so the film is full of linguistic complexity as, as well. So as they live in this place, he's grumbling about what I mentioned. She's not happy being there. And the townspeople kind of look down on her. She's very much the outsider, the interloper, however you want to put it. And so there's a lot of stress there. there there's going to be, you know, anatomy of a fall. Somebody's going to fall. Somebody, Somebody's going to die. And then there'll be a, a Follow-up investigation and, and murder trial and so on. What I like so much about the film was early on, you're looking for clues. That's why every minute I was glued to the screen, looking for clues, looking for evidence. I, I showed this film in a in a film club that I run, and, and the audience had a fascinating discussion because people were split. Some audience members basically thought the party that's been accused of murder is guilty. Other people, oh no, no, not guilty. I mean, we were like the jury, right? We were arguing for, <laughs> for a long time about this. I like when a film can do that. And even though I had very definite feelings about who done it and why and and yada yada, I realized I could make a case for the other side too. I realized that, you know, there's enough evidence to, to go around there. There are a few places in the film where I, th- I think the narrative has a few slips or mistakes or missed opportunities or whatever, but I can't go into detail without spoiling anything there. But there, there was, for me, some minor disappointments uh, along the way. But gosh, this is a film that is so well written and so well acted that it seemed churlish to register the, those complaints even. It has so much more going for it than most films that we have out now. And I just the other day was talking with a member of that film club and she called it a classic. Now, I wouldn't go quite that far necessarily, but I could, the people who like this film film really like it. And so I think it, it will have that kind of critical esteem, that, that sense of, you know, one of the the best films of the year. And I think certainly one of the most interesting films of the year.
0: Well, it's the contender, I think, right now, at least for Best Foreign Film, as well as perhaps some other nominations. I agree with you. The acting in this is absolutely superb. And the scenery is incredible looking. It's great to look at. But, I, and it's a courtroom drama, which I love. I love courtroom dramas. I, I can, eating that up, you know, from the get-go. But I will say, and I don't think this is giving anything away, the first thing you see before the movie even starts is a URL, which is didshedoit.com. And I saw this yesterday with my husband, and he said, uh-oh. <laughs> Meaning, oh, this is going to be ambiguous once it's all said and done. And we were surrounded by people our own age, there to see something challenging, different intriguing and it delivered in all of those things but I did check out that website after the film and that was even more interesting because you got people's opinions like you said of what they thought happened who was guilty I think that's a great thing when a movie kind of continues on past people leaving the theater and they're still talking about it
1: Well, yeah, people, like with my film club uh, audience, people were arguing during the discussion, which was what I wanted, a good, healthy Mm -hmm. argument. The argument continued out in the lobby afterwards. And then in the weeks since then, people are still talking about it. Now, you raise an interesting point because the film is premised on a kind of narrative ambiguity. And the story is all about storytelling. It's it's sort of like his version of a story, her version of a story, child's version of the story, and so on. You know, the, the prosecuting attorney, defense attorney, all that. Everyone has their take on it. And the film is so premised on notions of ambiguity or on Certainty that audiences, meaning you, me, <laughs> regular moviegoers around us, people respond quite differently to that kind of inherent ambiguity, don't they? Some audience members, are like me, I was intrigued by it. I wanted to follow every gesture, every close up. Other folks, you know, just get a little impatient with it, like, "Oh, come on now, you know, who done it? We want to know. We want a nice, neat resolution tied up with a ribbon and a bow. You know, we want we want that resolve there." And and it really does sort of break out that way. Secondly, you know how it breaks out, Marie. Preconceptions that we all have in terms of, you know, there could be. A, a macho aesthetic there could be a feminist take on it you need to on and on that way with you know and we're all we're all wired in a certain way as to as we watch a courtroom drama who we think did it but what are the reasons we think that what do we bring with us as our baggage as we go to the french alps and so my sense is it's really a kind of litmus test i think for the audience as much as for anything else as to well what you know what, what are your preconceived notions here because the film provides enough evidence quote-unquote to supply both sides or even more sides of the issue what do you think
0: I agree. And I think it was also a really clever choice to make both of the parents in the story writers. So when you get his side of the story, it's a good story. And when you get her side of the story and you listen to her testify, she's got a great story. And then they finally have their son on the stand and he's the son of two writers. So his story is compelling. It really is, I don't know, sort of a circular thing in terms of story. That's actually, I think it's really definitely going to be nominated for its screenplay.
1: It deserves that. It's really a very well-written film.
0: Now, in terms of the acting, I was really impressed with Swan Arlo, who is the lawyer. And that's partly because he looks like a young Philippe Duclos. If you're a fan of the series Engrenage, Spiral, he plays a lawyer in that. And I was just struck every time he was on screen, he's so arresting-looking. And he looks like a younger version of that other actor, who's also good as a lawyer in another series, really enjoyed seeing him on the uh, screen. And I think he's going to go on to bigger things.
1: Well, it's funny you say that a, a female film critic friend of mine made the exact same observation. She said, I'll believe anything he tells me I'm on his side. <laughs> <laughs> so, 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 you know, like, like because he argues so persuasively and he's so photogenic and he's just, he's just like, so likable on screen that, that kind of tips the balance. Actually, I would think, I mean, I, I shouldn't say that as, per, as a prospective juror, right? Then I'm going to, I'm going I'm to go for his side because he, he looks good on screen, but he really, Marie, he's really charismatic as an actor. I think he's got, got a real career ahead of him.
0: The other thing that I thought was interesting in terms of casting and design is that the minder that they have for the the young boy looks a lot like him, but he he's got a, a vision issue. So it's not like he can't see it. But I thought we could definitely see it. I just thought there was an interesting choice. Did you notice yeah, that? Yeah, we
1: can't really discuss the vision issue there. But but the the young son had had an accident, which factors into the marital discord there. There's a lot of backstory here, some of which you get directly, sometimes just through inference. But it's one reason why it's such a richly textured film.
0: I also think that the dog completely stole the show. And at the end of the movie, when the credits roll, he's listed first. Kind of loved that.
1: That's a definite reason to like the film, I suppose. (laughs) I don't know if there's an Oscar (laughs) category for that, but it's worth noting.
0: (laughs) Supporting, supporting, supporting actor. Yeah. Well, that does bring us to the end of this episode. But don't forget to check out our other episodes at atmhcc at podbean.com. And we'll see you next time at the movies.
1: See you then. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Media Podcast.